Hello again, and welcome to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Belletti, and with me is Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. The Jared Riddick. The Jared Riddick. <laughs> We're doing, I guess you could call it part two. From last week, we covered the first chapter or first version of the story of Mormonism from James E. Talmadge, and this is uh, the next chapter, next part of the article that uh, continues on his introduction to. Well, it's through a lecture delivered at the University of Michigan, Cornell University, and other places while he was a professor at the University of Utah. And he's giving his history on the story of Mormonism. But uh, here we go. We're continuing on that. So if you need the history of it, go listen to last week's episode and you'll, we'll get you a history of it. And it should be noted also that we won't be doing the full series for this series of articles because uh, this is, these first two parts have a lot more with the Book of Mormon in them. But if you're interested in reading the additional parts, they are on the Book of Mormon Central Archive, and that we'll link to them in the description for you to check out and read for yourselves. Awesome. So this particular one is a continuation of where we left off last time, where he was talking about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. There was some clarification on the fact that it's not a Mormon Bible, um, that it, we believe in the Bible, but the Book of Mormon is something separate. And this article starts out talking about it as the, you know, the stick of Joseph, stick of Judah thing that we... We, we often hear. We, we hear through seminary and, and that sort of thing. Sunday school. So, but he continues to go into some other things that, again, we can simply imply were issues and critical concerns of the day based on what he covered. What were some of those things that he continued to cover? First and foremost is the Spalding Theory again. Now, this is uh, 1901. The Spalding Theory's real demise, in my opinion happened in 1885 with the discovery of the actual manuscript. And you know it's still, if it's still in currency today, it was still in currency then as well. It's probably, especially among academic audiences, that it'd be outside their field. They probably aren't up to date with that. And so he addresses directly the argument that it came from, the he says, the so-called Spalding story. And he points out that he goes, by a fortunate coincidence in 1884, President James H. Fairchild of Oberlin College was examining a collection of old papers, and they discovered the manuscript found. They discovered Spalding's original manuscript with signatures attesting that it was Spalding's on the actual document. So this was not a forgery snuck forward uh, by nefarious Latter-day Saints to try and defend the Book of Mormon. This was the actual manuscript. And he pointed out that this some other explanation of the origin of the Book of Mormon must be found if any explanation is required. This is, this is not it. Well, he even says that there seems to be no name nor incident common to the two. Like, it almost sounds like the way that he's describing this is these aren't not, they're not even closely related. How did someone even forward this theory? And a lot of times you'll see in the 19th century and sometimes the late 18th century, what we call pseudo biblical style, where a, a book is written in the style of the King James version of the Bible, which was the commonly held Bible of the time. And many people read that. And because today uh, the language of the Bible is in the Book of Mormon is, is unique to that for us. We read that and immediately see resonance between the two. But is that resonance because of the actual contents of the books or because of the language used to deliver them? And I think that's what you'll really find with the Spalding theory and other theories like few of the Hebrews and others that have been put forward, uh, such as the late war or the first book of Napoleon. There's Napoleon popping up again. <laughs> um, that they're written in this pseudo-biblical language, this King James language, and people assume it means, oh, this clearly influenced Joseph Smith. It's no... The influence of the King James Bible version of the Bible 
likely influenced the translation of the Book of Mormon by Joseph as it was translated into the vernacular of his day. Yeah. Something we, many, when they're looking at these arguments, in my opinion, uh, neglect to adequately consider. And it's interesting because here again, we have this guy that's the president of Oberlin College that just comes across this manuscript. But this was a common enough issue that apparently he knew to say, hey, this is the Spalding manuscript. This is, this is a big deal with connection to the Book of Mormon. I mean, this, so this was not a small assertion by those who felt that the origin story of the Book of Mormon was not correct, was not legit. Uh, people throughout the country seem to know of it, which is partially why it was repeatedly ad- addressed in Improvement Era, and here Millennial he's giving these, and other these lectures. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, that it does say that this manuscript is not the original of the Book of Mormon. And he talks about a group here in, this, uh, in James Fairchild, his letter that was given and, and republished as part of this article, that there's a group called the Josephite Mormons. That is the reorganized church. In Iowa. Well, I, I don't know if it's, let's see, this is 1901? Yeah, this is Josephite um, Mormons in Iowa. My guess is this is probably the early reorganized church. So Known as the community of Christ today for any of our listeners. Sure. So in other words, nobody really bought into this, but they were very interested to get their hands on the manuscript mm-hmm. because it, it was a common, it's this common thing. And I mean, obviously, it's, it's since then been debunked a number of times. And, and again, as we mentioned before, it is available if people want to read it. Um, but there really is no merit to it. But again, people are still kind of asserting it. Later in this article, he goes on to talk about some other clarifying differences about the church and its history and, and continues to talk about some of its persecutions and um, does give some other assertions about the missionary work to the Indians. Missionaries among the Lamanites, as, as he discusses it, saying that, the, that they've always been very open to the Book of Mormon because it rings true with their own history. And while there were tensions in Utah, to put it lightly, I would say that's largely true, that they did find a receptive audience among early Native Americans uh, in the 19th century. Yeah. There's much work to be done there, and I think there could be some fascinating uh, publications on that, in addition to what's already been put out there. Yeah. So he continues with this idea of persecutions, and it, it makes me kind of curious. Why, why would that be relevant? Why would we need to talk about, why, why would Talmadge feel so, so much of a need to talk about the various persecutions that were driving the members of the church all over the place? Uh, a few things. Well, Utah has now very recently begun statehood at this point, I think four or five years before. We'll assume a little bit earlier, because the, if these articles are being published now, the lectures probably took place. Before that. Before then. Uh, there could be several reasons uh, for why he references persecution. Um, various governments for a long time uh, accused their Latter-day Saint citizens of being disloyal. Hugh B. Brown, when he was serving as an officer in the First World War, had to deal with accusations of that. And this could be a, a way of pointing out, going, this is our history. And this is not the history that you'll see in your Eastern history books, but this is what actually happened. Uh, Elder Talmadge was baptized in England when he was 10 years old and moved with his uh, family there three years later. It's never easy to be a recent convert sure. um, in an uh, area where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not well established. Um, people don't know who you are. They assume weird things about you. He could have had some childhood experiences with that. Um, and also in the academic world and his personal training, I, I imagine people were weary 
of um, his intentions or his intelligence as he's training these Eastern colleges from this provincial person from Utah coming out there and showing them all up, frankly. He was an incredibly intelligent man and blew through his courses of study. There's a number of reasons why uh, he could be mentioning persecution. Well, I think if the argument is being made that they were somehow disloyal, I think telling this story also gives a backdrop of, it's not that we were disloyal, it's that we were pushed out. Yeah. I mean, we went to Utah because... We had nowhere else to we go. We had nowhere else to go. We were getting pushed everywhere we went. And so... And we still got pushed in Utah. And and so here we, again, we, we have a, an interesting historical background. It wasn't necessarily a pity play. This was... There's a history here that you guys don't understand or don't know about because as it says in, in, this, in the article itself, their sufferings have never yet been chronicled by human scribe. And so I'm getting the impression that the story of the early saints and the things that they were going through was not common knowledge. It was not well recorded. And so there was an awful lot, like the Spalding story, there was an awful lot of history or understanding that, that needed correcting. So... Here is part two, the story of Mormonism written by James E. Talmadge in July 1901 in the Improvement Era. The story of quote-unquote Mormonism, part two, by James E. Talmadge in the July 1901 Improvement Era. Continuation from part one. The Latter-day Saints believe the coming forth of the Book of Mormon to be foretold in the Bible, as its destiny is prophesied of within its own lids. It is to the people the true stick of Joseph, which Ezekiel declared should be one with the stick of Judah, or the Bible. The people challenge the most critical comparison between the record of the Occident and the Holy Scriptures of the East, feeling confident that no discrepancy exists in letter or spirit. As to the original characters in which the record was engraved, copies were shown to learned linguists of the day and pronounced by them as closely resembling the reformed Egyptian writing. The Book of Mormon was before the world. The church circulated the work as freely as possible. The true account of its origin was rejected by the general public, who thus assumed the responsibility of explaining in some plausible way the source of the record. Among the many vague theories propounded, Perhaps the most famous is the so-called Spalding story. Solomon Spalding, a clergyman of Amity, Pennsylvania, died in 1816. He wrote a romance to which no name other than manuscript story was given, and which, but for the unauthorized use of the writer's name and the misrepresentation of his motives, would never have been published. Twenty years after the author's death, one Hurlbert, an apostate quote-unquote Mormon, announced a resemblance between the story and the Book of Mormon, and expressed a belief that the work brought forward by Joseph Smith was nothing but the Spalding story revised and amplified. The apparent credibility of the statement was increased by various signed declarations to the effect that the two were alike, instead of by extracts from both works. But the manuscript was lost for a time, and in the absence of proof to the contrary, stories of the parallelism between the two works multiplied. But by a fortunate circumstance, in 1884, President James H. Fairchild of Oberlin College and a literary friend of his, one Mr. Rice, in examining a heterogeneous collection of old papers which had been purchased by Mr. Rice, found the original story. After a careful perusal and comparison with the Book of Mormon, President Fairchild declared in an article in the New York Observer, February 5, 1885, quote, 
The theory of the origin of the Book of Mormon in the traditional manuscript of Solomon Spaulding will probably have to be relinquished. Mr. Rice, myself, and others compared it, the Spaulding manuscript, with the Book of Mormon and could detect no resemblance between the two in general or in detail. There seems to be no name nor incident common to the two. The solemn style of the Book of Mormon in imitation of the English scriptures does not appear in the manuscript. Some other explanation of the origin of the Book of Mormon must be found if any explanation is required. The manuscript was deposited in the library of Oberlin College, where it now reposes. Still, the theory of the quote-unquote manuscript found, as Spalding's story has come to be known, is occasionally pressed into service in the cause of anti-quote-unquote Mormon zeal by some who we will charitably believe to be ignorant of the facts set forth by President Fairchild. A letter of more recent date written by that honorable gentleman in reply to an inquiring correspondent was published in the Millennial Star, Liverpool, November 3, 1898, and is as follows. Oberlin College, Ohio, October 17, 1895. J. R. Hindley, Esquire. Dear Sir, We have in our college library an original manuscript of Solomon Spaulding, unquestionably genuine. I found it in 1884 in the hands of Honorable L. L. Rice of Honolulu, Hawaiian Islands. He was formerly state printer at Columbus, Ohio, and before that, publisher of a paper in Painesville, whose preceding publisher had visited Mrs. Spaulding and obtained the manuscript from her. It had lain among his old papers forty years or more, and was brought out by asking him to look up anti-slavery documents among his papers. The manuscript was upon the signature of several men of Conanot, Ohio, who had heard Spaulding read it and knew it to be his. No one can see it and question its genuineness. The manuscript has been printed twice at least, once by the quote-unquote Mormons of Salt Lake City and once by the quote-unquote Josephite Mormons of Iowa. The Utah quote-unquote Mormons obtained the copy of Mr. Rice at Honolulu and the quote-unquote Josephites got it of me after it came into my possession. The manuscript is not the original of the Book of Mormon. Yours very truly, James H. Fairchild. The story has now been published in full, and comparisons between the same and the Book of Mormon may be made by anyone who has a mind to investigate the subject. But we have anticipated the current of events. With the publication of the Book of Mormon, opposition grew more intense toward the people who professed a belief in the testimony of Joseph Smith. On the 6th of April, 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was formally organized and thus took on a legal existence. The scene of this origination was Fayette, New York, and but six persons were directly concerned as participants. At that time, there may have been, and probably were many times, that number who had professed adherence to the newly restored faith. But as the requirements of the law governing the formation of religious societies were satisfied by the application of six, only the specified number legally took part. Such was the beginning of the church, soon to be so universally maligned. Its origin was small, a germ, an insignificant seed, little calculated to arouse hostility. What is there to fear in the voluntary association of six men avowedly founded for peaceful pursuits and benevolent purposes? Yet the storm of persecution raged from the earliest day, at first but a family affair. Opposition to the work has involved 
successively the town, the county, the state, the country, and today, the quote-unquote Mormon question has been accorded extended consideration at the hands of the national government, and indeed most civilized nations have been forced to take cognizance of the same. Let us observe the contrast between the beginning and the present proportions of the church. Instead of but six regularly affiliated members, and at most two score of adherents, the church numbers today more than a quarter of a million souls already assembled in the valleys of the Rocky Mountains, and a multitude more in the foreign branches of the church. In place of a simple hamlet, in the smallest corner of which the saints could have congregated, there are now over 500 organized wards, each with its full complement of officers and quorums of the priesthood. The practice of gathering its proselytes into one place prevents the building up and strengthening of foreign branches, and inasmuch as extensive and strong organizations are seldom met with abroad, very erroneous ideas exist concerning the strength of the church. But the mustard seed, among the smallest of all seeds, has attained the proportions of a tree, and the birds of the air are nesting in its branches. The acorn is now an oak offering protection and the sweets of satisfaction to every earnest pilgrim journeying its way for truth. I spoke of the, quote, quorums of the priesthood, end quote, to be found in every organized ward. Allow me to digress long enough to say that the word quorum has a special significance in Latter-day Saint history and theology. Instead of signifying simply a majority of an organized body, such as is regularly constituted to transact business of the organization, the term signifies the organization itself. Thus, the people speak of a quorum of high priests, of elders, of deacons, and of the quorum of the first presidency of the church, signifying in the last instance the three presidents and not simply two or a majority of that body. From the organization of the church, the spirit of emigration rested upon the people. Their eyes were from the first turned in anticipation toward the evening sun, and not merely that the work of proselyting should be carried on in the West, but that the headquarters of the church should there be established. The Book of Mormon had taught the people the true origin of, and had shown them indeed part of the destiny of, the Indians, and to this dark-skinned remnant of a once mighty people. The missionaries of quote-unquote Mormonism early turned their eyes, and with their eyes went their hopes and their hearts. Within three months from the beginning, the church had missionaries among the Lamanites. It is notable that the Indian tribes have always regarded the religion of the Latter-day Saints with favor, seeing in the Book of Mormon striking agreement with their own traditions. The first fully established seat of the church was in the pretty little town of Kirtland, Ohio, almost within sight of Lake Erie. And here soon rose the first temple of modern times. Among their many other peculiarities, the Latter-day Saints are characterized as a temple-building people. And they say history proves the Israel of ancient times, too, have been. And in the days of their infancy as a church, while in the thrall of poverty and amidst the persecution and direful threats of lawless hordes, they laid the cornerstone. And in less than three years thereafter, they celebrated the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, a structure at once beautiful and imposing. But even before this time, Populous settlements of the saints had been made in Jackson County, Missouri, and in the town of Independence, a site for the great temple had been selected and purchased. But though the ground had been dedicated and the cornerstone laid, the people have not as yet been permitted to build thereon. 
Within two years from the time of its dedication, the temple in Kirtland was abandoned by the people who were compelled to flee for their lives before the rage of Mobocrats. But a second temple, larger and more beautiful than the first, soon reared its spires from the city of Nauvoo, Illinois. This structure was destroyed by fire, but the temple-building spirit was not to be quenched, and in the vales of Utah today are four magnificent temple edifices. The last completed, which was the first begun, is situated in Salt Lake City and is one of the wonders and beauties of that city by the Great Salt Sea. To the fervent Latter-day Saint, a temple is not simply a church building, a house for religious assembly. Indeed, the quote-unquote Mormon temples are rarely used as places of general gatherings. They are in one sense educational institutions, regular courses of lecture and instruction being maintained in some of them, but they are specifically for baptisms and ordinations, for sanctifying prayer, and for the most sacred ceremonies and rites of the church, particularly in the vicarious work for the dead, which is a characteristic of quote-unquote Mormon faith. And who that has gazed upon these palaces of praise can say that the people who can do so much in poverty and tribulation are insincere? Bigoted they may seem to those who believe not as they do. Fanatics they may be to multitudes who, like one of old, thank God they are not as these. But insincere they cannot be, even to their bitterest foe, if he be a creature of reason. The clouds of persecution thickened in Ohio as the intolerant zeal of mobs found frequent expression. Numerous charges, trivial and serious, were made against the leaders of the church, and they were repeatedly before the courts, only to be liberated on the usual finding of no cause for action. And the march to the west was maintained. Soon thousands of converts had rented or purchased homes in Missouri, Independence, Jackson County, being their center. But from the first, they were unpopular among the Missourians. Their system of equal rights, with their marked disapproval of every species of aristocratic separation and self-aggrandizement, was declared to be a species of communism, dangerous to the state. An inoffensive journalistic organ, the Star, published for the purpose of properly presenting the religious tenets of the people, was made the particular object of the mob's hate. The house of its publisher was brought to the ground, the press and type confiscated, and the editor and family maltreated. An absurd story was circulated and took firm hold of the masses, that the Book of Mormon promised the western lands to the people of the church, and that they intended to take possession of these regions by force. Throughout the Book of Revelations, regarded by the people as law specifically directed to them, they are told to save their riches, they may purchase the inheritance promised them of God. Everywhere are they told to maintain peace. The sword is never offered as their symbol of conquest. Their gathering is to be like that of the Jews at Jerusalem, a pacific one. And in their taking possession of what they regard as a land of promise, no one previously located there shall be denied his rights. A spirit of fierce persecution raged in Jackson and surrounding counties in Missouri. An appeal was made to the executive of the state, but little encouragement was returned. The lieutenant governor, Lilburn W. Boggs, afterward governor, was a pronounced quote-unquote Mormon hater, and throughout the period of the troubles he manifested sympathy with the persecutors. One of the circuit judges who was asked to issue a peace warrant refused to do so, but advised the quote-unquote Mormons to arm themselves and meet the force of the outlaws with organized resistance. 
This advice was not pleasing to the saints, whose religion enjoined tolerance and peace. But they so far heeded it as to arm a small force, and when the outlaws came upon them, the people were not entirely unprepared. A quote-unquote Mormon rebellion was now heralded. The people had been goaded to desperation. The militia was ordered out, and the quote-unquote Mormons were disarmed. The mob took revenge. The quote-unquote Mormons engaged able lawyers to institute and maintain legal procedure against their foes. And this step, the right to which we would think could be denied no American citizen, called forth such an explosion of popular wrath as to affect almost the entire state. It was winter, but the inclemency of the year only suited the better the purpose of the oppressor. Homes were destroyed, men torn from their families, were brutally beaten, tarred and feathered. Women with their babies in their arms were forced to flee, half-clad into the solitude of the prairie, to escape the rapine and murder then prevalent. Their sufferings have never yet been chronicled by human scribe. Making their way across the river, most of the refugees found shelter among the more hospitable people of Clay County and afterward established themselves in Caldwell County, therein founding the city of Far West. County and city judges, the governor, and even the president of the United States were appealed to in turn for redress. The national executive, Andrew Jackson, while expressing sympathy for the persecuted people, deplored his lack of power to interfere with the administration or non-administration of state laws. The national officials could do nothing. The state officials would do not. To continue in part three of the story of quote-unquote Mormonism by James E. Talmadge, please visit archive.bookofmormoncentral.org. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast by Book of Mormon Central. Please subscribe to the Rare Possessions Podcast in iTunes or in SoundCloud. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast by Book of Mormon Central. Thank you.